This is Brian Felt, the director of athletics at Seton Hall University, and you are listening to Left Coast Pirates. Let's go Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around it in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California, he is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. He is a writer for the New York Post and is the sports voice for New York City. Please welcome back to Left Coast Pirates Live, Zach Braziller. Zach, how are you today? What's up, guys? How are you? Did you get a chance to turn down your volume in time? Because my ears just got blown out. <laughs> no, it's not that bad. Jeez, Tom, you got to tone it down on these intros. I got a New York guy on the phone. I got to get excited a little bit here. All right, Zach. Well, thanks once again for joining the show. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, my pleasure. All right. So before we get started, how's everything with you and the family? Obviously, COVID-19 is spiking again. It's all over the country. I know you guys were at the epicenter of it all when it first kind of hit the U.S. How are things uh, from your end of it? Yeah, I mean, doing okay, and I think as as good as we can considered. Um, you know, it's it is what it is. It, I've kind of been under the impression for a while since we heard about the vaccine stuff that you know I think by mid mid summer we can really start kind of headed back to normal. With you know, it sounds like the vaccine is going to start being distributed soon. So I think it's just like you got to be smart. I think we're we can at least see the light at the end of the tunnel here. You know, I'm glad we're, 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 we're we got sports. I'm glad that we have some kind of a college basketball season, although it's obviously not anything close to normal. But, you know, doing all right. You know, just uh, trying to enjoy the simpler things, I guess. Well, we appreciate you being on the show. And what's funny is we were we weren't really expecting to have you back on the show until probably sometime later this season. But, yeah. you know, as it is with everything else this year, nothing's set in stone. So lo and behold, Seton Hall and St. John's get bumped up on the schedule in order to adjust for the COVID-19 pauses of DePaul and UConn. So here's my question. Based on your sources, are you hearing anything further along the lines of conference bubbles that Val Ackerman talked about the other day in order to create some kind of stability for the conference play? You know, I, I've kind of felt this way the whole time. The Big East will at some point go into some sort of a bubble. I think they would prefer to wait till February when students are back on campus. Look, if this gets worse and they get more teams in pauses and, you know, maybe teams in certain areas – you know, can't play games because of what their health departments do. I think they'll do it sooner. And look, the Big East has a, has a relationship with Mohegan Sun. We saw how well Mohegan Sun did their bubble, though. I, I would not be surprised at all if at some point Big East does a bubble of some kind of, at Mohegan. You know, I do know that they do prefer like two kind of regional bubbles where you have half the teams in one spot and half from the other. But I do think Mohegan Sun makes perfect sense when you consider the relationship they have, how they have the infrastructure there. We saw them do it well. So I, I think at some point you could definitely see that happening, you know, a, 
a 10 to 12 day bubble. But for now, they still want to do travel and, and play in home in home gyms. I think that's still their their preference. And that's still what they're going to try to do, at least. Well, she also threw out the concept of possibly just pausing altogether. Was that more lip service for a PR perspective? Just to kind of say, hey, look, we're looking at all angles here. Or could they possibly think about shutting down the conference play? Yeah, I think, look, if it gets, if it's all it's it, like you said, it could all change at the drop of a hat. I think they clearly would prefer just to to stay on the same path they're on. But they, you know, we all know that something like that can happen. I mean, if you have four or five teams in a pause, it's going to be hard to continue with conference play. I think that's just common sense, but that's clearly not the preference. They clearly want to try to go ahead with it. All the teams want to play. All the coaches want to play. All the schools want to play. I think we just got to see if it gets worse or kind of how the situation develops. Well, let's start talking about the Johnnies. That's why we've got you here. And let's start at the top with head coach Mike Anderson. He's currently in his 17th year as a D1 head coach and his second year at the helm with St. John's. Now, during his tenure, he's never coached a team to a losing season. And he's typically got his programs to the NCAA tournament by average by his third season, as fast as second, as, as slow as fourth. Now, Many people seem to be really bullish on the Johnnies this year, including John Fanta, who predicted St. John's to dance again this year on our season preview episode. Do you agree with Fanta? You know, I, I picked them to kind of be right on the bubble and make the NIT. I, I think next year they can, they can be legitimately good. I think they're a year away. You know, their, their two best players are a sophomore and a freshman, Julian Champagny and Posh Alexander. I think that's when you're talking about that, you're gonna that's gonna lead to a lot of inconsistency. They really don't have a ton of experience. They were five and one in non-conference play, but they were very up and down. They they beat BC, which was a really nice win. They also lost to BYU. They had they had two close games against Ryder and St. Peter's. They're they've been inconsistent. I, I do think they're gonna be a tough team. I think they're gonna have some really nice wins, but I think they're gonna lose some games they should win. I just think they're gonna be inconsistent. Now, I don't think his streak's going to end. You know, I thought if it would have been an ended, it would have been last year, and it didn't. I think they're going to win, you know, their fair share. I think they will finish above 500. I just – I think they're going to kind of be a little short. But I do think they'll be kind of right on that end to where if they do make it, I don't think it's going to be a shock. No, John John had him as like the first four in Dayton. He didn't have him as like a rock right. solid, like eight seed. Yeah, I don't still had him dancing, though. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Now, how much more comfortable are the guys with uh, Mike Anderson's system in year two compared to last year? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt the returning guys are more comfortable. They brought in some guys that fit that style. You know, Alexander is a is a you know a real defensive minded point guard. He's quick. He's tough. He's aggressive. He's perfect for the system. They brought in a, a junior college forward Isaiah Moore, who's really athletic, long and versatile. He's great. You know, up and down. So I so the guys that they added are guys that are really good for that style. I think he has a roster that that more fits the way he wants to play. I think next year he'll have a roster that's even that even fits it even more. He's his recruiting is you know is done by in a way he gets he looks for guys that kind of can get up and down and they can play the way he wants to play. He really didn't have a roster that was great for that style last year. I think the roster is better for it this year, but I still think he's got. He needs, you know, it's there. There's still some retooling and refining that still needs to happen here. Okay, Zach, before we continue to start breaking down the rest of the roster, I actually want to rewind for a second and go back and discuss the decision of LJ Figueroa to leave the program. You know, here's a guy 
that was on pace to potentially be a 2,000-point scorer for the program. He tests the NBA waters in the offseason, and then he decides to withdraw his name you know, from the process, but then ultimately not come back and transfer out to Oregon. I mean, he could have easily had to sit out this entire season before he got that last-minute waiver eligibility. You know, what was the driving force behind the scenes that ultimately led LJ to make that decision? Look, he was never all in in this program with with the new coach. You know, look, Mike Anderson didn't recruit him. When Anderson took over, LJ w- wasn't sure if he was coming back either. He had, you know, he he had answered the transfer portal and ended up coming back. Now, I think the 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 fact that there was the you know the virus and everything was so haywire, I thought he was he was under the impression he would be okay to get a waiver, which he eventually did. I think that was part of it. But in terms of him leaving, look, he didn't have a great year last year. There's no doubt. I think he wanted to go somewhere where he would have more success and set himself up better for being a pro. Now, I don't know if that's going to happen in Oregon. He's not really getting a lot of shots. He's a role player there, where at St. John's he was would have been the guy or at least one of the guys. So I don't know if this move for him helps him in the long run professionally. Look, Oregon's better team, there's no doubt. They're, they're going to be a tournament team. They're a top 25 team. But in terms of his future, I, I didn't really quite get it going to a school like Oregon where he's going to be showcased much less. But look, he, him, and, him and Anderson clearly never really, you know, fit. I, they didn't, I guess, see eye to eye is, from what I, is what I heard. The relationship there wasn't great. And I do think him leaving has kind of freed up Champagne to really be the guy. And so far, he's looked terrific. He's averaging over 20 a game. His shot looks much improved. He's, he's, he really worked on his game. St. John's didn't kind of, they needed people, they need people here who are all in. And if LJ wasn't really all in on the way St. John's wants to play, you know, it's probably in the long run for the better. I mean, is it a potential, I mean, this was the best player last year. Is it a potential addition by subtraction? Can you actually quantify, you know, him not being there as a positive for the program? I don't know if I'd call it a positive. I don't think it's ever, a, I don't think it's ever positive when you lose a good player. Right, right. But, you know, if you look at his season last year, there were games he shot them out of more than games that he won. Now, look, he was he's a good defensive player. He was he was good in the press. They're going to miss him. I'm not saying they won't miss him. There's no question they're going to miss him. But for what Anderson is trying to do, I think having these young guys be the focal point of this team is probably better in the long run for what they want to do and for what they need to do. Now, well, regardless of the departure of Figueroa, the team is off to a solid start, like you mentioned, with the wins against BC, but they've also beaten St. Peter's, LaSalle, Stony Brook, and Ryder with the one loss coming to BYU. Now, other than having gotten those six games under their belt in a non-conference, what has Mike Anderson learned about this team so far? Like we talked about, I think he's he's learned that they're going to be a little consistent. I think he's learned that he's got a go-to guy in Champetti. He's learned that Greg Williams Jr. is ready for an increased role. He's he's a junior guard. He's looked very good at times. He's learned that he can trust his freshman point guard, Pasha Alexander, that he's he's played very well. I know the schedule hasn't been great, but I, I've been impressed by the fact that this team in big spots has really come through. You know, they, they could have lost St. Peter's. They were down uh, four with less than they, 20 they, seconds left. They, they came stole back and, that game. They right. stole that game. They stole it. Right. St. Peter's gave it away. I, oh, I was watching that one. I, there's no, I feel bad for Shaw. Mikey, Mike, Mikey mushed him. He calls me up. He goes, you won't <laughs> believe it. Shaw's got St. Pete's to beat uh, St. John's. I said, oh, my goodness. And he just mushed him. So. Right. Ryder, the same thing. They were down in the second half. They came back and won. While it's not great competition, I think it's important 
and, and says something about this team that they found they have found ways to win so far this year. You know, Vince Cole has been a big player in those two games. You know, he's another junior college addition. I do think that says something that when they haven't been good, they've found ways to win. Now the competition is going to obviously go up much higher in the Big East. I'm very intrigued to see what what this team does. I think Boston College is probably the best team they played, and they played very well against them. And all, although they almost collapsed late, and they beat them, I think that's that shows you something. BYU was a team that they they struggled with a, a very a much older, experienced team that slowed the pace down. But in the Big East, you're you know a lot of, you're not going to see that very often. Most of these teams like to get out and run and and play fast. But I do think this team has the potential to create problems for a lot of teams, and I do like how they match up with Seton Hall. All right, let's let's talk some more about Julian Champagny. Obviously, with Figueroa leaving, it opens up the door for him to have the opportunity to be the the alpha on this team. And so far, he hasn't disappointed, right? He's averaging 22 points a game, seven boards in the four games that he's suited up for. And those numbers probably down a little bit because he didn't play as many minutes in the Stony Brook game. But 29 and 25, respectively, versus BC and BYU. How dominant of a player can Julian be in the league this year? You know, he's he's really impressed. I mean, he's gotten a lot better. His shot's gotten better. He's shooting the ball on the move well. He, you know, he's a really smart, he was always a really smart player who can help you without even scoring. And look, they're going to need him to score. He's, he's, he's 6'8", he's athletic, he's long. He's really impressed me so far. I mean, he's going to have to be one of their, one of their constants offensively. They don't really have a lot of givens as scores. You know, you have him and, and Greg Williams and Vince Cole are probably the three guys they're going to look to the most to score the ball. Um, and look, I wrote about a lot before the season. A big difference this year is these guys who were kind of role players last year are going to have to be consistent and they're going to see more attention. Now, I'm sure Seton Hall is going to look to take him away and it'll be interesting to see where St. John's goes. But what I've seen so far, I think he's a borderline first-team first player. I think he's got a ton of potential. Is there a possibility this is the last time we get to see him play? He's going to go pro next year? No, I, I don't see that. Um, I think he's a guy that's – I think he's a four-year guy, if not a, a, at least a three-year guy. You know, he's he's got a strong family. He's got a good sh- head on his shoulders. I don't I don't see him as going too early, especially considering this draft this year is absolutely loaded. I, I think he's going to be a guy that's going to be part of this core for at least another year with him and, and Greg Williams and, and Cole. I think I think they could be very good next year as long as you know we don't see any surprising defections. I, I like their potential to to have a very have a quality team. Now, Seton Hall fans have watched Shavar Reynolds step up at point guard in the absence of injured Bryce Aiken. And St. John's is kind of familiar with the same kind of storyline as Rasheem Dunn has missed a total of five games with a concussion. Talk about the emergence and impact of Posh Alexander, who's averaging nine points, four boards, and five assists per game in 31-plus minutes. Hey, look, he's he's been terrific so far. He's surpassed my expectations early. I, I was... I wasn't even sold that he would start. I really wasn't. You know, I, I know Mike Anderson really likes experience. And, you know, talk, I talked to him today and Anderson said he doesn't recall ever starting a freshman point guard, which just says a lot about Posh. I mean, the thing you like about him is he doesn't really have to score to impact a game. He's terrific defensively. He's so unselfish. He, he attacks and, and looks for it to set up other guys. And like you said, without Dunn, there's been even more on, on Alexander's shoulders and he's carried it so far. Now, lately, he hasn't been quite as aggressive offensively, which is something I think that he needs to do. He needs to take shots when the shots are there because he, he's not a guy known for his jump shot, but teams are going to play off him if he doesn't take the shot. 
And I think that's something he really needs to do more of. He he did it a little in the BC game. He hit a few threes, and that really opened things up. So I, I, he needs to do that more. But look, he's been everything they could ask for so far. He's, you know, he's distributing the ball. He's he's great in the open court. He's he's setting guys up. He's he's creating havoc defensively at the top of their press. I mean, he's a guy that you could just imagine what he'll be like as a junior. He he could be a phenomenal player for them. So there's there going to be this ongoing storyline for the next four years about how much Coach Willard and Seton Hall are going to regret not getting him into campus in South Orange? Look, they wanted him. I, I talked to Willard about it the last a few times in the last few weeks, and he was like, look, I, I really wanted him. I thought we had a shot at him. I think his last three was St. John's, Seton Hall, and DePaul. And there was some mystery of where he was going to go. You know, um, his I talked to his dad the other day, and his dad said he thought the kid was not going to go to St. John's. And dad's a big St. John's fan. Uh, Julian Champagne, who was a good friend of his, thought he was going to date. Ultimately, he decided to stay home and go to St. John's. And, you know, they, they're starting to get some good local players between him and Champagne, two Brooklyn natives. They have two guys from Long Island Lutheran coming in next year. And that's something St. John's fans, you know, they like you just you want to win, but that's something they really, they, St. John's fans really kind of want. They want lo- they want to see local guys there. And that's like something, look, Seton Hall has done well. It's been a big part of these last five years for Willard is, you know, getting Isaiah Whitehead and Desi Rodriguez and Carrington, getting some good city players. He's he's got a good one coming in next year, Brandon Weston. And you can only imagine what what you know getting a posh would have done for them, especially when you look at what they have now, where they really don't have a point guard until Bryce Aiken comes back. All right. Now, finally, how is Rasheen Dunn doing? I know there are some tweets out there about him finally getting a little physical activity. How's the kid feeling? He practiced today. I was told he looked okay. You know, he's going to sound like he's going to be a game-time decision. They looked smartly taking it slow with him. He had a really bad fall. He really banged his jaw on the, on the, on the court. My gut is he might, they might hold him out another game, but I wouldn't be surprised if he plays, especially because he practiced. I, 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 until he practiced, I thought he's not coming back. Now, I could see him playing very limited minutes um, against Seton Hall. And look, they need him. He's a guy that can really attack. He's really good defensively. He fits Anderson's style. He's a fifth-year senior. So, I mean, he he checks all the boxes of a valuable player. He's definitely needed. I'm just not sure really how much you can expect out of him in his first game back after being out a few weeks. Okay, Zach, let's continue to kind of take a look further at this roster. And, you know, it appears that Mike Anderson, based on his style of play, wants to go with a deep roster, play 10 guys. You're seeing that a lot of these guys are getting double-digit minutes as, uh, you know, averages in their rotation but so far, you've seen guys step up in different moments, as you mentioned earlier. You got Greg Williams, 21 points, six steals versus Stony Brook. Vince Cole, the Juco transfer, 25 points versus Ryder. And there's six players that are averaging more than eight points a game. Is this a supporting cast by committee? Or is there a player that's going to kind of blossom and become more of that consistent second option next to Champagne? They do have a lot of options, but I, well, if you're looking for a second guy, I would think it's going to be Greg Williams. You know, he's, I've always been a fan of his. He's got all the talent in the world. It's just confidence has always been an issue. He's had a few good games already. He finished last year really well. He, he keyed their big upset of Creighton when Creighton was on that huge winning streak. He, you know, he's six, three, he's super athletic. He can shoot. He's a, he's a smart player. He, he doesn't force it. Sometimes you'd like to see him force it. Sometimes he just doesn't shoot the ball enough. You know, Ryder, he was quiet. He was in foul trouble, but he was terrific in the Boston College game. He was great in, in, in their um, win over Stony Brook. He's a guy that really has that chance, and really they need to be consistent and be a consistent weapon 
when you're talking about someone who can attack the basket and can shoot from deep for a team that really doesn't have a ton of great three-point shooting. So that's kind of, you know, my guy. I also I also look at Vince Cole as someone who can give you points. Marcellus Erlington has started very slow after being a factor late in the year, and he's another guy off the bench who can score the ball. You know, I think at their best, they're going to be a team that is balanced, but I do think you need Champagne and Williams to kind of be the two of those two guys that kind of they look to to really score the ball and to be consistent. Let's transition to Friday afternoon's game here. Yeah, 4.30 is still considered <laughs> the nighttime in sports. That's not Come a on. nighttime game. Stop it, Mike. You know, this Seton Hall St. John's has become quite the eventful matchup in recent years. You go back a few years and Shavar Reynolds has a buzzer beater to open up the Big East play after a controversial steal against LJ Figueroa. Plus back-to-back years at the Garden where St. John's has squandered big leads to let the Pirates take it down the stretch. Now, outside of Villanova and Rutgers, Seton Hall fans would typically agree that this is their biggest rival. Do you believe the juice in this matchup still exists, or do both programs need to be back to national prominence for that to happen? I think for the league, for the matchup to matter more, St. John's got to win some games. Seton Hall has won eight of the last ten, and it's really been a one-sided rivalry. You got to see St. John's win a few of these before, you know, we always say rivalry has to be has to have both teams winning. And right now it's been very Seton Hall, you know, one-sided. Although they've had a few of these games at the Garden, like you mentioned, that really Seton Hall's found a way to win that really could have gone either way. But I do, I don't think you need the two teams. I mean, I mean, I think Seton Hall is nationally relevant though. I know they're not ranked, but I, I think they're nationally relevant. I mean, they were very good last year. I think they're a tournament team this year, even despite the slow start. And I think St. John's is headed there. I really do. I think by next year, they can be a borderline top 25 team. And it, I think it's a, it's a rivalry that really can get back to really being significant. I mean, especially when you're looking at now maybe St. John's is kind of back to getting some of these city kids to stay home that have gone to Seton Hall and have gone elsewhere. I think St. John's matches up well. I think their pressure is going to give Seton Hall a lot of problems. And I could see, I could see the two teams splitting this year. I think they're more on even footing than they've been in a while. Now, the Garden seems to be a bit of a home away for home for the Pirates. They've had a lot of success over the past years. Does this stick in the crawl a little bit for the Johnnies? Do they want to turn that around? Yeah, of course. I mean, no doubt. I mean, they want to turn turn the Garden into more of a home court advantage. You know, they they started to really create that at, at Carneseca last year where it wins over, you know, Creighton and Providence and DePaul. Now they, you know, they obviously no fans really kind of changes everything this year. It's just such a bizarre season. But yeah, there's no doubt they 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 they, they want to turn the guard into a home court against everyone. There's there's no question. All you can do, the only way you do that is win games. It's it's really simple. If St. John's wins, you see all these people come out of the woodwork. There's it's there's no question when a, when St. John's is really good. And it has, you know, we haven't really said that in a while, but when they're really good, they really become New York team, especially with the sorry state of the Knicks. <laughs> oh, he went there. He went there. You... I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's, you know, it's I grew it's, up, it's I remember growing up in I high school, I, uh, no one cared about baseball until the Knicks were over. And now it's like, they don't even exist. All right, Zach. So in my opinion, this matchup, Seton Hall wants to try to take advantage of the size, right? But it, it keeps on getting beat up on the offensive glass by other teams to date. And conversely, St. John's has been averaging over 12 offense rebounds a game themselves. Do you see these trends continuing to play out in this game, in your opinion? Yeah, I, I don't think you're going to see St. John's being nearly as good on the glass, off, on the offensive glass going forward. Some of that's been against undersized teams. You know, they, they're going to want to play, for the most part, you're going to see them playing small. You're going to see them with sometimes Champagne as their biggest guy. 
you know, they want to go up and down. I, I don't see the offensive glass being being something that's a factor. To me, the game all boils down to this. Seed Hall handles St. John's pressure. Because Seed Hall is short on ball handlers. Shavar Reynolds really isn't a point guard. They're playing him out of position. I think the key for St. John's is pre- – it's not even really turnovers. It's pressure, and it's wearing down – Sandro Mamu Kalashvili. He might be the key. He might be the guy they have to use against the press. And if that happens, that could take some. That could take something out of him by the second half, and maybe that hurts some of his playmaking and scoring ability. I think that's the thing to watch in this game. I, I really do. I mean, St. John's gave Seton Hall with, with a senior backcourt. Their pressure gave Seton Hall all kinds of problems last year. Now you throw in the fact that. You know, you don't have Bryce Aiken. Freshman Jahari Long really hasn't played much after that quarantine that really, you know, took an effect on him. Reynolds is a guy, you know, especially heaven forbid he gets in foul trouble, they're gonna have a lot of they're gonna have a lot of issues with that pressure. And that's that's to watch. And they're gonna have to use Sandro against that pressure. And if he's dealing with pressure all game, well, there's seven, eight minutes left, how much is he gonna have left to really take them home there? Well, you kind of already beat me to my next question. Obviously, Anderson wants to play that up-tempo, full-court pressure, you know, 94 feet of hell the entire time. And they're averaging 12 steals a game, so they're being effective at it. Seton Hall, in my opinion, and Tom kind of agrees with me in our last episode, Seton Hall has looked better when they've actually got out in transition. When they wanted to push the pace and run offensive themselves, they've been kind of bogged down in the half court. Do you see this being a high-scoring affair, like the Boston College game, or would it behoove Seton Hall to kind of get into that half-court struggle because that is not St. John's forte? Yeah, I think I think a half-court game is if you're Seton Hall is what you want to play. I don't think there's any doubt about it. St. John's is not great in the half-court. Seton Hall's bigger. They're more experienced. I mean, I get they've played. They've looked good in transition, but they're not. He's not playing a lot of guys. He's playing like seven guys. If you go in an up and down game where St. John's is pressing you all game, I think Seton Hall is going to really wear down. Especially when you're looking at how much they're they're putting on Reynolds, how much Sandro is going to have to handle the ball. I think that's a case that could really hurt them in the last five six minutes of the game if it's somewhat comp- somewhat close. If I'm St. John's, I press them from the gate. I press them all game. Seton Hall's ball handlers are very questionable, and that's even if Aiken's playing, and we know he's not. So I I think that's if you're Seton Hall, you want a half court game. I know they haven't been great in it, but it doesn't matter. That's what they want. If I if I'm them, you want a half court game. Now, normally I don't put a whole lot of stock in Vegas lines, especially early in the college basketball season. But this was kind of surprising. The line opened up at Seton Hall minus nine and a half points. And with only 20 minutes, it was already down to minus eight. Now, before you give us your prediction on the game, what are the odds makers seeing to make this this high? I was I was stunned when I saw that this afternoon. I I was I, I thought it would be Seton Hall maybe minus three, three and a half, maybe four. I mean, That's nine. What I said. That's what I said to Tom. See? Nine See? and a half. I was maybe part of that is. You know, they they saw how poorly St. John's played against Ryder. I mean, that maybe that's one thing I could think of. I mean, that's the only that's the only thing that makes any sense to me because it's bizarre. I mean, Seton Hall has played a tough schedule, but they they do not look like a team that you would think could is going to win a, a Big East game at this point by double digits, even at even at home. Especially when you consider that I don't think I think it's a good matchup for St. John's. I I guess all I can think of is they think Seton Hall starting to get it together after the win at Penn State. And that they just don't like how inconsistent St. John's is. That's my reasoning, but that's that's the only thing that kind of I can think of. Well, a lot of the fans out there agree with you because the early money has been coming in against St. John's, and only twenty sense. minutes that that line dropped all the way to eight. So you can tell, you know, it's just the trend's already being set. I don't think it's right. going to even stay at eight, to be honest. 
No, I, I think it'll probably get down to around seven, six and a half by Friday after by the time the game starts. I, I wouldn't be surprised by that. All right, Zach, we're going to put you on the spot like we always do. We'd like to hear your prediction. Do you make the fans happy in New York City or the South Orange dance? No, I think Seton Hall is going to win a close game. I just think they have more experience. They have the best player on the floor. They're a little, you know, they're a little bigger and tougher. I, but I do think it's going to be a very close game that could go either way in the final minutes. I, I completely disagree with Vegas, nine and a half. I think there's no chance that's getting covered. I think Seton Hall winning, you know, like a 75-71 type game. I think it'll be a very entertaining game. I think St. John's will beat them at home. I think they're I think they're the closest they've been in a long time. I think they're very similar right now in terms of talent. I mean, obviously different strengths, but I, I think they're very they're very they're on very similar footing. I think Seton Hall's a little better, but I do think St. John's matches up well with them because of their style and their pressure and the fact Seton Hall really doesn't have a true point guard. So I but I think it's a fun game. I really do. I'm looking forward to it. I, I think it'll be an enjoyable game. And I think both fan bases will uh kind of a heart attacks because I think it's a game that probably could go either way. <laughs> well, Zach, we can't thank you enough for coming on, especially this late on the East Coast, giving us a behind enemy lines view of St. John's. We really appreciate you as we always do. And you're welcome back anytime you want to come on, man. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Be safe. And um, hopefully we get a fun full season. Have a good night, Zach. Thank you again. All right. Zach hey, Braziller, everybody. So, Mike, that's what Zach Braziller thinks is going to happen tomorrow. What do you think? I think he's pretty spot on. I mean, I, I don't think Seton Hall has the ability to kind of distance themselves right now from any one opponent just because their offense is so inconsistent. I'm a little concerned. I, I The same things that Zach highlighted. Who's going to be the primary ball handle against the press? Is it going to be Sandro? Does he wear down? Shavar is going to be really aggressive on defense like he always is. Their guards like to go strong to the basket. Does he get in foul trouble? Do you lose another ball handler trying to break the press then? Uh, my other concern is, you know what? We we have not seen Ike and Tyrese do well with athletic forwards that can kind of create off the dribble. If you watch Julius Champagny play, he's an athletic forward. He's crafty with the basketball. If you watch any of the film uh, in the previous Seton Hall games, he's going to do exactly what Omarui did and really challenge those forwards to move their feet and try to get to the rim. And I'm just concerned that, like Zach said, they're playing a seven-man rotation right now. If those guys get into foul trouble and now you lose your size advantage, how does Seton Hall kind of you know, run with their horses for a full 40 minutes? So I do think Seton Hall wins. I think their experience kind of gives them a little bit of an edge, but it's not nine and a half. This could be a coin flip potentially. You know, Mike, I'm not viewing this game too far off the way you are. You know, like Zach said, we've got the best player on the floor. Like you mentioned, we're a bigger team. We should be able to dominate that glass. But I think it's going to come down to how we handle that pressure. And Zach's right. We can't just expect Mambo to handle it. This is going to be on Shavar Reynolds' shoulders for a good part of it. How can he handle the pressure? And I'll say this to you, Mike. We ate Crow a couple years ago when we kept saying that Roe looked like he was going to be five fouls. If Shavar handles the pressure tomorrow, I'm going to have to start saying that, well, maybe he's playing a little bit better point guard than we gave him credit for. He has, though. So, so I mean, we, he needs to start getting that credit. He has been solid with the ball. He hasn't turned it over. He's been improving on his dribble penetration and creating some backdoor cuts, some uh, alley-oop lobs. 
I still don't feel confident that on a consistent basis he can beat his guy off the dribble and create that offense throughout in 40, you know, 40 minutes of play. And he's playing 40 minutes right now. He's not getting much of a rest, so he's going to wear down if he keeps on taking on that kind of a workload. There's a lot of ifs still out there. Hey, we, we didn't talk about it. Is Aiken going to make an appearance? I mean, I know that they said, you know, it's probably going to be for the 20th up at Providence, but true to fashion, Willard gives you a date, and then before you blink, you know, it's, it's, it's three games sooner. So are we going to see a last-minute surprise Bryce Aiken appearance? That'd, that'd be how many days would that be that that's almost three and a half weeks after a twisted ankle they're really taking special measures to make sure he doesn't get hurt again we just we haven't gotten that many details around it right they've been pretty hush hush about it uh you know if you have a high ankle sprain sometimes those linger and i hate to say it they can go four to five weeks we just never really got a prognosis to say here's what bryce is dealing with Here's the regiment that we have him on, and here's the timetable. It, ke- it keeps on getting changed in the media with very, very little detail. And like you said on the last podcast, with very little pushback because till now, Shavar has done beyond a serviceable job. If Shavar was struggling, I think we have more questions about when is he back and what kind of capacity is he going to be able to kind of play from a minutes perspective. So that, that could be an interesting storyline that we're not even really talking about. But I think that you're going to see a lot more of our small lineup that we saw towards the end of the Penn State game. I think you're going to see a lot of Shavar, Kale, Molson, Roden, and Sandro all on the court at the same time. Well, Mike, tomorrow's going to be interesting. We're going to have to work through lunch. We're going to have to put that out of office sign up early, and we're going to have to watch that game. Work through lunch, Tommy. I started the first podcast for the season saying that I schedule my life around Seton Hall basketball. Work can be on pause for a solid two and a half hours tomorrow. The game well, is on and, and the phone calls go to voicemail. 4.30 on the East Coast, 1.30 on the West Coast. And what do we say, Mike? We say go Pirates. Go Big Blue. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other of your favorite listening platforms. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle at Elcos Pirates. We are also proud members of the What You Expect Network of Podcasts. And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Desiri. And you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates.